So every year, more or less, I make my annual pilgrimage to the Midwest. I go to Kalamazoo, Michigan, mm-hmm. to the International Congress on Medieval Studies. I posted some Instagram stories and got some some questions from 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 uh, from the front porch listeners, which I thought was very fun. Like, <laughs> why are you there? What are you doing there? What's uh What's up? What's what, in Kalamazoo? Why are you in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Well, I was at Western Michigan University with. 2,000, 2,500 of my colleagues who study medieval literature, culture, and history. Hard to believe, no offense, that there are so many. There are so many. (laughs) There are a lot. Yeah. And many of us meet in Kalamazoo every every May. Um, It's always a lot of fun. I didn't go last year. Um, Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. I just feel like you go every year. I've gone, I think this is my fourth time. Okay. Um, But I didn't go last year. I went this year and I loved it. Um, I always feel really revitalized, mm-hmm. refreshed after I meet with those people because it's like a bunch of people who care about the same stuff that I do. Yeah, like a pep rally. Yeah, but yeah. But lower key, maybe. Yeah, I mean, and there's controversy. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article. Which one? Um, about Kalamazoo. Oh, I didn't. About the fight within medieval studies about reclaiming our field from white supremacy. Okay. The New York Times article is not very good. Mm-hmm. It paints it paints this like actual real struggle um, as like a joust between medieval scholars who all just want to be treated like monks like within their cells like none of that is true (laughs) nearly all of us got into academia and teaching because we want to mold minds we want to inform people about you know how actual history works and not white supremacist history right um like None of us want this. None of you are jousting about None it. None of in us the back are room. jousting. No, this is like a real struggle <laughs> with real stakes. Yeah. Like this isn't a joke. Yeah. Um, and so like that was a big point of contention, I guess. Yeah. Or everybody's like, Do you read the New York Times article? Ugh. <laughs> and then I ran into this reporter who was like asking questions about it. And so I gave my honest opinion for twenty minutes. Oh, fascinating. Um, hope not to be quoted in something. Was he from the New York Times? She, she no. Sorry, um, that was I don't exist. don't know where she was from. Um, didn't say. That seems sketchy. I know, on and she every was. Every level. And she was like younger than me, probably. So I don't know if she was well, like. Well, no offense, but that's typical now. You're right. <laughs> I'm not young yeah. anymore. I hate to break it to you, man. There's a contestant on The Bachelor from Oof. Faulkner University, mm-hmm. which I feel that's wild. real questionable yeah. about. Um, but somebody was like, "Oh, did you go to school with him?" And I was like, "Guys, he's 24. I'm 33. No." No, I'm too old. I started teaching my summer class yesterday and said something about Napoleon Dynamite. And I was like, oh. that's a little after your time. And they were all like, no, I mean, we've seen that. And this one girl was like, how young do you think we are? <laughs> and I said, well, I imagine the oldest of you is 22 since you're in college. I'm 29, which means we never overlapped in school. Right. That movie came out when I was in ninth grade. And I saw it like as a high, like and you saw it as a high school. I, I saw it when I was in ninth grade. Yeah. When you were seven. Yeah. So younger than me is what I think. Yeah. And I saw it in college. <laughs> right. Like, like freshman year. Right. Oh, anyway. What so a world. What a world we live in. It's a world that, I don't know, I, I still enjoy. Yeah. Me I think too. I think they heard. There's pros and cons. There's good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. Yeah, and finding. Dig deep, guys. Dig real deep.
Welcome to episode 223 of From the Front Porch, a collection of conversations on books, small business, and life in the South. My name is Chris Jensen, and, well, I'm back from my trip. And I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. I wanted to talk about this question that we had from a reader, from okay. a listener, not a reader, although I'm sure they're a listener. They're probably They're a reader. a reader, too. Yeah. Man, I can't get any of my words straight because I'm trying to pull up this document behind the recording window. <laughs> um, here we are, though. This is why you can't multitask, everybody. This is why you shouldn't multitask. Multitasking is it's a bad myth. bad for your brain. Somebody, I don't remember, but somebody much smarter than me on that front wrote a whole article about how, like, multitasking is a myth and people who think they're good at it actually aren't. Yeah. You're only half doing, probably. Exactly. And I say that to myself. And it's the Ron Swanson yes. thing. Whole A, one thing. Yes. My motto. I'm yes. trying, because I'm not always good at that. I'm terrible at that, yeah. but here we are. Here we are. Um, so we got this prompt from a listener, and it is for us to talk about the bookshelf staff's favorite classics. Yeah, I think this was a comment on Instagram, and I am so sorry. We cannot, for the life of us, find the listeners. And where it came from. Instagram handle, but I know it was an Instagram comment. And Elin, our social media manager, kind of sent it to us, and we thought, yeah, we haven't talked classics in a while. We haven't talked classics in a while. And I do want to get this out there. Like, when I emailed the bookshelf staff about it, like, I do think the word classic is very hard to define. Yes. And And it's very kind of nebulous, and it can mean lots of different things. Yeah, and I think we have talked about that before. We have. Particularly because of your area of expertise. Right, and so, like... I study medieval literature, I would consider all those things classics, but then I'm also going to consider something published in the 80s a classic. Right. And I think that's really weird. And like, that's true. Mm-hmm. They are classics. But I just wonder if those really do fulfill parts of the same category, okay. you know? And so what my stipulation for the bookshelf staff when I sent this prompt out was it needs to be at least 25 years old. Okay. And to me, I made that up because... For something to be considered a classic, I think it needs to be multi-generational. Mm-hmm. It can't just have been well-received, because that's just a good book. Right. It needs to have been well-received by its original audience and by a generation after them, at the very least. I like that idea. To show that it has some staying power. Yeah, I because, like that like, definition. There are plenty of books that have come out in the past 10 years that are very good, yeah. right? Five of them will be classics. Yeah, time will tell. Time will tell, but we we need to give these things room to breathe before we can just call them classics. Let them marinate a bit. And so I made a twenty five year arbitrary window, but I think I think it's a pretty good, a pretty good stretch of time. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to talk about things that have been published before nineteen ninety four. Also, can you believe twenty five years ago was nineteen ninety four? Don't even. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> it's terrifying. I was like, that was at least nineteen seventy five, right? Yeah. No, No. but we all still count back from 2000. Yeah, and are we the only ones doing that? I don't think so. Like, not just me and you. I mean, is our generation the only one doing that? I think everybody does that. Or do you think everybody, it's that millennial. It might have stopped with us. It's that 2000. Right. We're just very confused about what the year 2000 meant. Because the year 2000 was so big for us. Yes. I mean, I was 10, but still. But like, I wonder if my parents just kind of in the back of their head are like, yeah, 20 years ago was the 70s. Because that's what I think in my head. Do my parents who are older than me right. also think that? Do I, like, if I say 30 years ago, do I think 1990? No. No. I really don't. I think 10 years ago, and I'm still baby. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's a weird, weird time. It's very, very weird. We and talk I, about time a lot on this podcast. Well, and that's a consequence of you talking to me, because <laughs> um, time is all I ever think about. 
Um, but anyway, we wanted to talk about some of our favorite books that have been published more than 25 years ago. We devote so much of our airtime to new things, which is great. Yeah. Um, we want to encourage you to read new things too, but classics are classics for a reason most of the time. Yeah, and I my brother frequently asks me this because because of the classes classes I took in college, the great books courses uh-huh. and things like that. My brother sometimes asks me, and he reads still very academically, mm-hmm. and he is always asking me, do you miss reading academic works or older works? Because most of my reading time is consumed, as everybody right. knows, by new, by, brand new, by new literature. And the answer is yes and no, um, because I actually think, and we we talk about the value of uh-huh. new literature all the time. Like, totally. It has things to teach us that older literature, just by its nature of when it was right. published, can't do. Exactly. Um, but as somebody who also loves classic works and mm-hmm. things that have stood the test of time, sure, I do miss sometimes reading maybe, I don't want to say heftier literature, no. but literature that you would be, you would, might associate with your collegiate level courses. Right. And the thing about a lot of these classics is we give them much more weight than they might have had in their own time. Sure. We talk about Dickens as like, oh, this master of literature, like his was popular. Right. Charles Dickens was the John Grisham of his day. Right, which I kind of love. Right? Yeah. Like, he just wrote all these things. They appeared in the paper. Serialized them. They appeared in these little booklets that then got collected later into, into novels. But, like, nobody took him seriously as, like, this high literary masterpiece right. writer. Like, he was John Grisham. Right. Um, and that's great. Yeah. Um, but we, we impart to some of these people an air of importance that they didn't have in their own time. Yeah. And I think that's important to note. Yeah. So, let's start with the rest of the staff, I think, and kind of close with us. Okay. Um, let's start with Olivia, um, who gave us three books by the Brontes. Oh, she's a Bronte. She's Look, a Bronte girl. I didn't girl. even know this. Yeah, I don't think she did either. <laughs> um, she sent her email to me like, okay, here's three of my favorites. Also, in collecting these, I realized, man, I like the Brontes. <laughs> um, so, she gave us Jane Eyre. Okay. We've talked about Jane Eyre at length on the podcast before. We have. It comes up a lot. Um, and we can talk about that a little more later I think okay she also gave us Villette which is also by Charlotte Bronte okay um, published under a pseudonym and then The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte okay I have not read any of these I've read Jane Eyre okay um, and so I can talk about that but we've talked about these are there common themes in these like I'm looking at her list I would assume feminist lit before I, I would struggle to say feminist uh huh um people do see Jane Eyre as a feminist manifesto and I, I have not read it because I disagree and I hard disagree on yeah. that stance <laughs> my do. thing about feminism is just because it features a woman prominently right a strong female protagonist doesn't necessarily qualify it as feminist look I'm gonna admit something here which I have admitted many times I've never read Jane Eyre I don't intend to. Jane Eyre is going to come up again yep. uh, in this listing. The only experience I have with Jane Eyre is seeing the musical uh. here in Thomasville and watching it and thinking, oh, I don't think I need to read this. And then it became, I mean, it is when we interview other authors um, and we always ask those four questions. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I ask is, what's a classic you've never read but they, you wish you had? 80% of the so time say Jane Eyre. So say Jane Eyre. And so I'm here to say I've not read Jane Eyre and I don't regret it. Yeah. Now, does that mean 
it's not worthy of being Olivia's favorite. Of course not. No. It just means it's not mine. It was also Rebecca's yep. uh, favorite. She was a former manager here at the bookshelf. It was, I think, her favorite work yeah, of literature. Yeah, I think so, too. I read it for a class in college. I enjoyed it just fine. Yeah. Is it a classic? Absolutely. Is it my favorite? No. Right. By, by no means. Right. Um, can, can you tell me about Tenant of Wildfell Hall? I can't. What about Villette? Nope. Nothing about them. I, I know nothing about these. And so really, we should have I should have asked for a little blurb <laughs> instead of just a list Olivia, of titles. Give us the titles. Well, I'm, not, I'm more familiar with some of these others on yeah. the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can talk about the other ones much better, I think. But, but I'm so... Here's in terms what of I, the Brontes, I'm sorry, Olivia, but I, I, I don't know. I haven't here, read these. Well, here, here's what I love. Great. Okay. So I love that you and I don't know anything about these. Mm-hmm. I also love that Olivia, if you are familiar with our store, uh-huh. she's our manager. Her reads gear toward, generally, now she actually reads a wide range. She does. But like her shelf subscriptions tend to be suspense, thrillers, the occasional sci-fi twist. Mm-hmm. Um, she took that Blake Crouch book from me. <laughs> she did, Just man. Scooped it out right from under <laughs> she me. She read it and she was like, nope, this is mine now. Ah. Um, but she reads everything from, yeah, like... Um, Oh, what's his name? Horowitz, Anthony Horowitz. Yep. Um, she also is a collector of. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna blank on the name. And we have searched for her some of these books. Like she ha- collects these used books that are famous. Oh my gosh, I'm blanking. I'm a terrible podcaster. Um, <laughs> they're um, they're these mysteries, like dime classics kind of things. She's gonna listen to this and be like yelling it into her radio. Yeah. Sorry, Olivia. I'll come back to it. But my point is she reads these things that like a grandfather would read. Right. Um, and then I think it's really funny that her list of classics does not look like that really no. at all. I mean, no. Jane Eyre does have like kind it, of a... It's got a suspense, suspense element. Suspense element. Like a very 19th century suspense Kind of like element. Rebecca did, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's really cool that Olivia was clearly raised on, to some extent, the Brontes. Right. But then as an adult reader, she still loves those books, but she has totally branched out into another genre of literature. I think that's kind of cool. It is. And I want to be just very clear here that like, we are not poo-pooing the Brontes. No. It's just not our thing. No, it's Um, just sadly I I love that you love the Brontes if you love the Brontes. It's just not my thing. And maybe I should. There are plenty of things that I like that you, listener, probably don't and that's okay too. And maybe I should read a Bronte. Truly, it's one of those things sometimes I talk to customers and if something missed me in high school or college, it just missed me completely. Right. I have friends, Lucy's one of them, who goes back and reads classics now and I'm impressed by that but it is not something... I have, I have done. Um, I'm trying to look up the mysteries featuring. Oh, I just wish I could remember. Anyway, I'll come back to it. But I, yeah. but I love that Olivia has branched out. Like I think it's cool that the origin story of Olivia features the Brontes, and now mm-hmm. she loves C.J. Box, yeah. and Anthony Horowitz, yeah. and Blake Crouch, and. I mean, she also loves YA fantasy. Like, I think it's kind of cool. It is cool. And YA fantasy, I might be able to trace back to some of these. Yeah, maybe. Brontes. But anyway, interesting. Um, let's continue this Bronte train and pivot okay. into Nancy. Okay. Um, who lists Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. We now have the third Bronte represented. There she is. Um, and Huckleberry Finn. Okay. I can talk about Huck Finn. I can too. Um, I also really love Huck Finn. I was about to say, I really like Huck Finn. I got to attend a book club here in town. Uh-huh. 
that meets at the local university, and it's primarily older yeah, people. But I remember I, this. I sat in on this class, and they were talking about Huck Finn, and I felt like I was in a collegiate level course, like. If you have like this urge and itch to go back and get your master's degree, check yourself because master's degrees are expensive. And don't do it. <laughs> and you might not need one. And instead, see if your local university, yes. community college or something yes. has a book club because the like I think a prof- if I'm not mistaken, a professor led the conversation. Um they kind of provided a lecture, but then also discussion time. It was phenomenal. And I was able to sit and interact with people of a different generation. And you can they were learning from me. I was learning from them. It was really fantastic. Can I lead a book club? Can you lead a book club? L- lead a book club? <laughs> yeah. You totally can. Huh. Yeah. I think that is... Because, like, I'm unemployed for eight weeks in the summer. And, like, I'm not asking to be paid for this, but, like... I want to lead a book club. It could fill your time. I think that might be fun. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Okay, so that might be coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, What do you like about Huck Finn? I think Huck Finn is honestly a thrilling adventure tale. Yes. Um, I love the plot. I love the humor in the plot. The when he meets the dolphin. Mm Hmm. Um, these con men pretending to be the lost prince of France. Like, I just think that is hysterical. Um, I love the relationship between Huck and Jim. I do understand that some of that is controversial, but, you know, I, it, it works for me still. Um, I think the cultural context of it in the 19th century where it, it is exposing a lot of, of American racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uses the N-word liberally, but nearly always by villainous characters Mm -hmm. um people that we are not supposed to sympathize with and we are supposed to see hey this is wrong yeah um and when huck uses it in the beginning he doesn't later and we can talk about and there's a real valid criticism of this book that like oh it's just about a white person being educated on these struggles of black people and like yeah that is a real criticism of the book valid and i think absolutely valid i think that's what we're gonna find as we discuss some of these classics is yeah, some of them are problematic Because now. we shouldn't need to teach empathy. <laughs> empathy is something we should have endemically as human beings. And maybe you grow your maybe. levels of empathy. But, but I do think, because we're going to talk about one of my favorites that we've mm-hmm. talked about at length on this yep. podcast, but these stories were written in a particular time and yeah. context. And so by their very nature, that means now some of it might be cringeworthy. Exactly. And I... As a professor of literature, I really do think it's so important to try to understand things within their own context. Mm -hmm. It's important then to place them in our context to see what that new conversation is. But it's so important to look at something in the context in which it was written to see what it was trying to do beyond what it might do for us today. Have you read Wuthering Heights? I have not read Wuthering Heights. So this is so funny. I think, is this episode... Time out for Time Lord talk. Is this episode going to go live tomorrow. tomorrow? Yeah. Okay, so the podcast this week did an episode on their their listeners' most underrated books. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Most overrated books. Overrated books. And underrated is a fun conversation to have anyway. We've done that recently. We have. Yeah. Um, so overrated books. And one that continued to come up in the comments, but they did not address it on air, was Wuthering Heights. Mm. And I am really curious. So Nancy is a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. Most of the rest of us are millennials. I'm looking at no, the, We yeah, all are. Yeah, we're yeah. all millennials. So I was curious, Nancy's perspective on Wuthering Heights 
Wuthering Heights. Um, because I have not read that. I clearly just missed out on the Brontes entirely. Yeah. Like, I got none of them. That's really interesting. I know. I don't know how that happened. No, and I have I feel a, like I got a decent education. My BA was in English literature, and I've only read Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> yeah, what's up with that? And one of my favorite professors was a 19th century scholar who only ever taught me Jane Eyre. <laughs> All right. She well, was a Jane Austen person, so I read most of those. Yeah. And she's very Jane century, really, but... All right, well, anyway, live and learn. Live and learn. Here we are. So we can't talk about Nancy's really in hindsight. I should have asked for blurbs from everybody. It's okay it's because fine. I think most people, like the question from the listener really was, what's your staff's favorite classics? Yeah. And here's what I love. I think you can tell from these lists that we all read pretty differently, Yeah. which is maybe the first time that has happened I try to when, when Sterling worked at the bookshop yeah he read Sterling was very different but I do really appreciate that we all kind of cover different pockets I was gonna say I think the Sterling Rebecca Chris Annie era we were yes, all pretty diverse that's there that's true with with good overlap yeah it was like a good four circle of a diagram but I I like the fact that hopefully listeners can take a look and think oh I'm with Nancy yeah I love Jane Eyre so I probably should try Weathering Heights yeah or I'm with Olivia I, and, you know, I loved Jane Eyre, but I've never heard of, how did you pronounce it? Villette? Villette, yeah. Villette. Um, so anyway, I think hopefully you're going to get some takeaways from this episode, yeah. even if we don't provide a total uh, synopses of each title. Um, Lucy really likes Middlemarch. Okay. Um, by George Eliot, um, and East of Eden by Steinbeck, and A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Okay. Um, we I, can talk about these. I was about to say, I have not read East of Eden, but I really like Steinbeck. And that might be an unpopular opinion, but I love The Pearl. Oh, I think people love Steinbeck. I don't know. There are some people I think who really? don't appreciate him. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I've not encountered this in, yeah. in my pocket of the I world. Think, I think Steinbeck is is worthy of your time. If you're listening to an episode like this and wondering, what classics should I bother with? East of Eden is one of them. Yeah. Um, this is one I would I would challenge you to read. Really? East of Eden is a very worthwhile classic that I think you'll you particularly would really love. Maybe I would like it. All um, it's got lots of biblical residents. Um, okay. East of Eden, of course, being sure. the uh, the first reference there. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really beautiful story and heartbreaking in all the right places. Um, but Tale of Two Cities was I've never read. Disney. Really? I know, guys. Yeah, everybody's listening to this thinking, well, Annie has problems. Okay. Uh, like I was saying earlier, that like Charles Dickens is the John Grisham of his day. Yeah, it makes him really accessible. Yes, I know that I could. Um, the great thing about his serialization process is that every chapter has its own like arc. Yeah. So every chapter is thrilling and moves you into the next one. Like every chapter ends on a cliffhanger and right. makes you want to keep Which reading. Which I like that um, a lot. Tale of Two Cities is his best by far. Okay. Great Expectations is also worth a worth a read, but it's a. I think Great Expectations is a young man's story, okay. and Tale of Two Cities is a is an adult man's story. Okay. Um, I should try it. Here's my thing, and I think maybe you can understand this too. Like, I think it is hard for me now, mm-hmm. and maybe listeners have the same problem, where I'm trying to keep up with hot new literature. Yeah. Gag, sorry, but yeah. like, but I am trying to keep up with what's relevant and prevalent now. Mm-hmm. And I am having an issue with, okay, but how do I find time, not just to read Backlist, which mm-hmm. we both know I struggle with, yeah. but how do I find time to read classics, which sometimes take up more brain space, yeah. just by their very nature. Right. So Because they have survived and come down to us and been preserved because they're... Right. Because they have something to say. Yes. Yeah. So I have this friend and her um, bookstagram... Uh, 
handle is Juliana Reads, but she is she is my real life friend. And what I love about her is that she will once a year, I think she told me, she will pick like, I believe a 700 or a thousand page book and go back and read it for the first time. So last year she did Lonesome Dove. Um, she, That's great. I think this year she's doing Count of Monte Cristo. Good. And so, I really want to read that. Yeah. I've never read that. So and I, I think really, I'd like it. I think you probably would like it too. So I think I need to, and maybe for me it's not so much page length, but it's, I think I really struggle with, last year I tried to read business books, like mm -hmm. four business yeah. books. This year I was like, oh, I'm going to read some nonfiction. And I am occasionally, like dope sick or whatever, weaving them in. But it's hard to tell myself, okay, East of Eden and Tale of Two Cities sound legitimately good. Where in my reading life right. can I fit them? And the thing about Tale of Two Cities is because of its structure, its cliffhangerness, mm -hmm. um, you can read it quickly. Yeah, like, I should binge it. You, you can read it in a couple days. Yeah. Um, it's also not that long. Great Expectations is long. Yeah. Um, fun fact about my experience with Tale of Two Cities. Do you remember Great Illustrated Classics? Of course I do. Um, so in high school, sorry, Jill Erfmeyer, Vienemann, if you're listening to this show, <laughs> um, I wrote an entire paper on Tale of Two Cities. Based on based that? Based entirely on the Great Illustrated Classics version. Which are not... Which are not the actual it's book. It's like basing your paper on the wishbone yes show. it is exactly <laughs> like that which is how i did encounter count of monte cristo and you know and i got an a on that paper <laughs> um for what i don't know i was not a very good student in high school honestly which surprises lots of people but i was not uh -huh. um i didn't do a lot of the work and so i've I've tried to make up for that. I did it for you. I've tried to make up for that. Who went above and beyond. Yeah, well, <laughs> and in adult life, I did too. I went and got a whole PhD yeah. in literature. Yeah. Um, so here I am, but it, sorry, everybody, I didn't 15 years ago. I think Lucy's, if Olivia's picks are surprising based on what she currently reads, Lucy's totally line up Absolutely. with what she currently reads. Um, I also think Tale of Two Cities is a book for Jordan. Oh, good. It Maybe is a, we should buddy read it. It is a Jordan Jones book through and through. Maybe we'll read and it. And that it's all about honor and loyalty. Yeah. I wonder if the, uh, the audio book's any good. I bet it is. Maybe we should try it. Okay. So let's pivot now back into you and me. So we can actually talk about these guys. Yeah. Um, the thing is about these, we've talked about these to death. I know. On the show. Which is why I think we can be pretty quick. Okay. Let's be pretty quick. I do have... I feel like talking about these made me think they were like great books books mm -hmm. like Voltaire like that yeah. I didn't oh, mention totally. but I love those books did or you read, Wasteland did you read Rasselas oh no that didn't, um, I didn't Samuel know. Johnson it came out the same year as um, Candide okay. Voltaire's Candide and they're the same story oh except Rasselas is like kind of serious and Voltaire is funny but they yeah. are exactly the same book Candide was one of my favorite great books Candide's great the other one that comes to mind is uh, Flannery O'Connor Wise Blood mm -hmm. um but so as we're talking about these, I feel like, wait, but I have a lot of classics I like, but I'll stick and to four. You know me. Yeah. And that's the thing. We also gave ourselves a little leeway. I asked everybody else for three and we have four. Yeah. That's host privilege. <laughs> anyway, I've talked about Brave New World ad nauseum. Yeah. Um, it is probably my favorite book, period. Um, I think it is so timely and has been since the 20s when it was published. Um, I love to pair it with the follow-up collection, Brave New World Revisited where Huxley, 40 years after publishing the book, goes back and writes a collection of essays about how so much of it came true, in a, but in a way that he didn't expect. Mm -hmm. um, he knew what was going on. He's a very good cultural critic. He was able to kind of predict where society was going, but it still surprised him the way that it actually kind of came about. 
I wish I could bring Huxley back from the dead for a week so he could observe 2019. I was about to say, so he could uh, have some commentary on today. Yeah, just I would love to see it. And my other perpetual commentary on this is everyone, everyone, everyone always talks about 1984. Forget 1984. It's not real. It's honestly not even that good. <laughs> Sorry, George Orwell. <laughs> Um, he has other better books. Animal Farm is way better than 1984 mm. at me. But Brave New World is the much more incisive cultural commentary. It is the one that actually came true. Um, if you don't believe me, read Neil Postman and oh. you will be um, amazed. Um, my favorite that I have talked about ad nauseum and people are already mouthing it in their cars is To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. I won't talk about this one any further because we have devoted episodes to... F- full episodes, yes, multiple. Yes, to the problems with this book, mm-hmm. the history of this book, the legacy of this book, mm-hmm. um, the fact that I controversially enjoyed Ghost at a Watchman, mm-hmm. um, even though it probably shouldn't have been published. It shouldn't have. Um, But I liked it for what it was, for its piece of literary history. Uh, I am anxious to read Furious Hours, which came out this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Last week that Lucy has loved um, about the true crime that Harper Lee investigated after writing To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Look, To Kill a Mockingbird is, in part, a white savior story. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And It's still a well-written book. Yeah, it's still really well-written and portrays the South in a really realistic way. A very honest portrayal. Yes, the small town South in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, And Scout's narrative voice to me is iconic. I can't like, I can't think of a narrator. Every child narrator of the 20th century. That's right, was based on Scout. Has a debt to Scout Finch. Absolutely. So To Kill a Mockingbird is my one that we continually talk about. Um, I've also talked at length about my love for The Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that we both have Salinger on our list. I know. Um, This is very good. Um, the Catcher in the Rye is iconic. Um, I know that a lot of people don't like it, and they think it's, like, very whiny. Sure. He's um, a teenager. He's a teenager. That's the point. Right. We're not supposed to identify with right. with Holden Caulfield. Wow, I blanked on his Almost name for half blanked. a second. We're not supposed to identify with Holden Caulfield, and when we do, we're supposed to see by the end of the book that that identification is problematic. Yes. And so when I read this book when I was... 20, Mm -hmm. which I think was the right age for me to have read this. A lot of people want younger, but I was ready at 20. Mm -hmm. Um, That like, Holden Caulfield has a savior complex. He has a messiah complex. He wants to make sure that everybody is okay because it's like the one thing that he can do to kind of control the scary, terrifying world around him. Right, his narrative. We also forget all the trauma that he goes through. He, his brother dies before the book opens. He is molested by, uh, by his teacher. Yeah. Um, two thirds through this book, like Holden Caulfield goes through some bad stuff, yeah. and all, and he never addresses that. He internalizes all of that and just just wants to make sure that his sister is okay. Mm-hmm. I think he's beautiful. I love this book, and I think probably depending on when you read it, yeah, you get a different thing out of Absolutely. it, which I think is what a classic is. If you read it in high school and hated it, right, I strongly encourage you to read it as an adult right. because it is not. It's not what you remember. And I loved it in high school, but also love it as an adult. Yeah. Like I, and for different reasons. For totally different reasons. I think in high school, at least part of the angsty... I was not a particularly angsty teenager, right. but the angsty side of me appreciated Holden. Yeah. And then as an adult, made me realize what the, all the things you just said. Yeah. Um, he's, he's tragic. Yeah. What makes him interesting is how broken yes. Holden Caulfield is and how he doesn't ever, ever, ever... Um, actually vocalize what's wrong with him. Right. He's just from Gilmore Girls. He, yeah. He is. He <laughs> really is. 
He absolutely <laughs> is, but in a way that I find palatable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I hate I hate Jess Mariano. I love him. <laughs> in what, a way that, what a character. What a character. Yeah. Anyway, yours, nine My, stories. Yeah, mine is nine stories. We did not plan this. Um, I, when I thought back to classic literature that has grabbed me outside of the context of school, I thought of nine stories. Yeah. This is a book I can remember picking it up at Barnes and Noble, like the mass market paperback with the rainbow stripes yep. on the cover and yeah. <laughs> reading banana fish yeah. and being blown away. Yeah. Just utterly like thinking, I mean, I think I was also kind of new ish to the short story sure. genre. And so thinking how, what a punch he packed in like this tiny little landscape. I just, I just love this collection. Yeah. And it introduces you to some characters that he then... Seymour, an introduction. Yeah, that then goes back and addresses the Glass family like uh -huh. later on. I fell in love um, with these really... These weirdo characters. Yes, they're <laughs> so weird. And I think... But so relatable. So relatable. And when I think about some books, I the books that I have read and loved in my adulthood... I frequently talk about dysfunctional families, yeah. but dysfunctional families that love each other. Yeah. Um, strangers and cousins is what I've talked about recently. They feel like the glass family. Yeah. Like, so I feel like these characters unknowingly to me planted themselves in my brain. I would suggest mainly from knowing CJ Hauser that many writers who write dysfunctional family novels are profoundly influenced by Salinger. I'd agree with that. CJ has a Salinger tattoo. Okay. Um, like, she loves Salinger, yeah. and I think that really shows... And it sh certainly in, shows in Family of Origin. Yes. Yeah. It really shows in the way that she writes about family. Yeah. And I think you can see that in, like, Family Fang and yes. pl plenty of other dysfunctional family novels. Yes. They're really indebted to Salinger. Yeah. Um, Man, I want to put in a plug for Franny and Zoe here, too. Um, and I won't talk about it, but Salinger's great. Yeah. Read Salinger. Yeah. Um, great Gatsby. Overhyped? No. I think properly not. Properly hyped. Properly hyped. I even like the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Is it an accurate portrayal of the book? No. But it is a very interesting adaptation. You know where it is accurate, an accurate portrayal of the book? Is in the... Um, the excess. Glitz and yeah. the excess. It totally... Lines in with the themes of that book. And where I think the movie fails is I don't think that the movie condemns and criticizes excess the Correct. way that the book does. Look, I don't think we do as a people, right? No. We look back at the Roaring Twenties as like, what fun we were having. And, were we? and we don't give Fitzgerald the credit he deserves for for criticizing that. Yes, and he for is, the tragedy of that. He is in no way endorsing the excess of the 20s in The Great Gatsby. Yeah. In other places he is. Yeah. Um, but in The Great Gatsby, he is showing the hollowness yeah. of the American dream yeah. um, of wealth and the idea that wealth can buy us happiness or that we can become somebody new. This is another easy-to-read one. You Absolutely. You were talking about Charles Dickens being accessible. I think Fitzgerald is super accessible. He is. You know what I read in school? He's a commercial school? writer. Yeah. You know what I read in school that I loved? I think it's called Bernice Bob's Her Hair. Uh -huh. I love his it's short very stories. Good. Like, I really do. Um, he He's a writer who I think you could dive into now with no problem. Yep. A Diamond as Big as the Ritz is another one. Yeah. Um, and then there's... Winter something. I think I went through a Fitzgerald phase. In Winter fact, Dreams? I know I did. Because I feel like I read almost everything by him and then was like stalked his home place. Yeah, in, in uh, Montgomery. Not even his, Zelda's home yeah. place in Montgomery. Um, so I did go through a Fitzgerald phase. Tenders a Night is beautiful. It's so good. Um, yeah. So 
you all know about The Great Gatsby, but if you think The Great Gatsby is this celebration of wealth, then you haven't read it. Yeah. Um, so please go back read and do it, it. I think it has a lot to tell us in 2019. Yeah. Honestly, it really, really does. Um, um, Little Women is mine. Again, we talk about this all the time. I also frequently talk about an old-fashioned girl. Yeah. Um, but if I had to be honest, Little Women is the book that I think shaped a lot of who I am. Um, pick Yourself Up By Your Bootstraps, Do The Work, mm-hmm. is very much Marmy and the March Girls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I I just love these women. I love um, their legacy, and I love the spunkiness of Joe. But also, as I've gotten older, I have come to appreciate the value in all of those sisters. Uh Amy, I still struggle with, just being totally honest. (laughs) Um, So I I read that book last year about the legacy of Little Women, and I loved revisiting the characters through an academic lens. And so Little Women, to me, stands the test of time and is one that I keep begging my mom to read. My mom has never read it. That's crazy. Right? Susie would love it. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, I feel like maybe my mom and I should just read it together. It's been a long time since I've reread the whole thing and I have issues with it and I had issues with it. What I love is it's one of those books that I've read multiple times over the years. Yeah. So when I was eight, that was the first time I read it, hid in my closet, sobbed over Lori picking Amy. And then as I've gotten older, I think I appreciate that st- yeah. that line, that yeah. storyline a little bit more. So I think you it could pick sense it up. For who they are. Yes, it totally does. She was, I think Louisa May Alcott was a genius in the writing yeah. of characters yeah. in particular. Anyway. Totally agree. Um, speaking of genius in writing characters, let's go back to the ultimate dysfunctional family novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Jordan loves this book. This is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's long. It is Listen, long. Listen, I'm not... felt like a champ when he was there. I'm not going to kid you. I had to push myself through this book. Yeah. I read it the same summer that I read Catcher in the Rye. In fact, I think I read it right after Catcher in the Rye. Um, that was a good summer for that reading. Is a good summer. I talk about summer 2010 as my best reading year ever, mm-hmm. reading period ever, and it was. But Brothers Karamazov has 100 page stretches where nothing interesting happens. Mm-hmm. It is very much a character study um, that has lots of different threads running through it that don't always seem like they connect mm-hmm. until the end. But when I got to those last four or five pages, it all felt worth it. Yeah. It felt so worth it. And I, I cried, and it was. Very cathartic and beautiful. But this is a story of three brothers. There is another character, too. But if I talk about him... We're entering spoilers. Then we're entering... And, like, this is a 200-year-old book. Like, there are not spoilers here, but... We're entering spoiler territory that will actually hinder your enjoyment enjoyment of the book if you know anything about this other person. So, if you enjoy Dysfunctional Families and you really want to push yourself through a 700-page novel that will feel worth it at the end, I strongly encourage you to read The Brothers Karamazov. It is gorgeous. Juliana should put this on her list. She really should. Um, my last one is Crossing to Safety. I have talked about this book before. This is the book that introduced me to the idea that characters don't always have to endure something horrifying. Yeah. Um, writers can write about quote-unquote, normal experiences, and please understand what I mean by that. I mean it in the most selfish way possible, which is I have lived a, quote-unquote, normal, quiet, not super up-and-down experience. Stable. Yeah, stable is probably the better term. And I have often wondered, well, would that hinder my ability to tell a story? Would Would that hinder... 
um, the characters that might come out of my brain. And Crossing to Safety showed me that you can write a story about relatively stable characters that still is beautiful and interesting. And so I, I read uh, Crossing to Safety as an adult. I did not encounter it until post-college. And I remember thinking, oh, this should have been a great book. Mm. Um, so Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. Yeah. And this one comes up often on our show, it too. It does, because it's one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Um, I wanted to put in a quick plug for two things. Yeah. We're about to do Backlist Book Club. Mm-hmm. And our Backlist Book Club for June is Their Eyes Were Watching God ah, by Zora Neale Hurston. That'll be great. So that falls into this classics territory. So if you are looking for a book to read that is kind of in this quote-unquote genre then I think you could read along with us. Their eyes were watching God. Hunter and Emily and I will do a discussion about it in June. And if you like classics about book discussions, our last Backlist Book Club, Mm -hmm. or two times ago, was... um, was if Beale Street could talk, right? And I think that that falls was a very in, good discussion, and it falls totally into this conversation yeah. about do classics matter? Right. Why do they matter? Mm-hmm. Uh, why do they stand the test of time? What is James Baldwin doing? Right. Um, that still resonates today. Right. So you can go back to that previous episode, and you can read alongside with us um, our conversation about. Um, their eyes were watching God, which I've never read. Wow. I know. It's going to be great. I'm very excited. I'm teaching a Hurston short story tomorrow. Oh, fun. Yeah. It'll be great. Awesome. We're at the bottom of the barrel again. Started out strong, but now we're coming up thin. Oh, we have cast our lots with all the devils of sin. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. From the Front Porch is a production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. It's produced by me, Annie Jones, and Chris Jensen, and edited by Chris Jensen. If you're interested in purchasing any of the books we've talked about on today's episode, you can do so at bookshelfthomasville.com forward slash shop. Thank you, as always, to Forlorn Strangers for the use of our theme music. It's called Bottom of the Barrel from their album Forlorn Strangers. Learn more at forlornstrangers.com or follow them on their current social media at The Rally Club. If you'd like to support From the Front Porch on Patreon and gain access to exclusive bonus content like our new release roundup and unpopular opinions, check us out on patreon.com slash fromthefrontporch. You can also find us at our website, fromthefrontporchpodcast.com, for web-only content and a full back catalog of our show with detailed show notes and links to further reading. This week in the bookshelf, a funny thing happened. Um, look, I had a hard time coming up with a story for this this time, um, but over the past couple of weeks, we have had a couple of customers comment about our children's section in a less than positive way because of... Um, the diversity of our children's section, and it has been very fun. Question mark. Choice words. <laughs> it has been fun. Question mark to respond to those customers and to watch poor Lucy and Olivia have to navigate such fraught discussions about children's literature and why diverse voices matter. And I just want you to know that your bookstores and libraries are doing their darndest. And if you love your local bookstore's selection and you love what your library is doing and the voices they are featuring, tell Tell them them. because they are hearing at least probably in pockets of 
the part of the country where we live, uh, we occasionally hear uh, the negative voices. And so if you love the diverse selection your library or your bookstore offers, I hope you're telling them. Please tell them. It really matters. <laughs> it it keeps morale up in a, in a really important way. Yeah. So thank you for much. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>